Heavy Cardboard, Episode 152, Ginkopolis. Coming to you from halfway up a tree in Zhejiang Province, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Martin. And I'm Jess. How are you doing, Martin? Hello there. Ah, I'm doing <laughs> well. Uh, a week away from liberation. Um, when I, uh, two weeks after my second jab and I'm free to roam around the world. This is me as well. Ne- one week from today. Yeah. Fully vaccinated. Never did I think that would be an exciting statement to make like i am fully vaccinated yay i got a sticker did you get a sticker i probably did get a sticker i don't know where i put the sticker but i i I think i got one i still have a sticker book so it's in my sticker book to commemorate the occasion these might be prized things in the future we may look back on this time and be telling future generations about you know i went i got a sticker i got jabbed in the arm and i was super excited about it Yep. Yeah, I guess that that could be the case. Um, I'm just glad it's all over. Personally, <laughs> well, it's not all over. It's 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 all over for some of us in America. Um, I'm very. I've got obviously friends I work with in uh, India, and obviously there, it's very much not all over. And uh, same. I have that you know deeply mixed feelings of relief for myself and people around me, but also a lot of concern about the rest of the world and. What the, what's, there's still a lot going on there. There is. And it's a really weird uh, balance, right? Because I'm super excited now to be fully vaccinated, um, barring any boosters that we need in the future for this. However, I do feel really, even in Canada, right? They're struggling with this. In India, they're struggling far worse uh, with getting the vaccines out there. So it does feel a little bit, like the have and have nots, even with vaccinations uh, being around. And I felt that way personally in Massachusetts. I don't think they did the best job ever, but at least it is better than the curve of worldwide, uh, potentially. Uh, but it's a weird thing that some folks are going to be able to travel. Some folks are going to be able to not wear a mask. But honestly, I think I still am just to show that camaraderie to have respect for others personally what about you yeah i mean i I tend to avoid wearing that outside because i know outside transmission isn't really a thing but again if people around me are wearing masks then i would put one on and inside um i have definitely been wearing masks and i think as you said i I will continue while the transmission and, and the level of vaccination is up in the air because you know you can't have every place you go into check you for your vaccination status and you don't want to be rubbing in your vaccination status to everybody else so slipping a mask on um seems like a polite thing to do so i'm quite happy to do that right exactly it's kind of like yeah that's what it is for me it's just the camaraderie of i understand that maybe you weren't able to get it yet and i don't want to be walking around you know touting that oh well i'm vaccinated or or something that but that's i think it's going to be a personal thing for each individual as we go through this and just having a level of empathy for those who are still struggling and keeping that in mind but eventually this will be behind us we will return to conventions and 
I don't know. I, I think still this is going to impact us for years. I know personally, I haven't gotten sick or really, really, truly sick in 18 months. I don't know that I want to give up <laughs> the masks that easily inside. I don't think it's a bad thing. Plus, I have really cute ones. I have one that's a little velociraptor. I, I don't know that I want to stop wearing masks. And maybe it's become a little more socially acceptable to do so. Versus before, I think there was a connotation of, oh, wait, what do you have? Why are you wearing a mask? Are you sick? Now it's it's a little more acceptable. Maybe I'll keep doing it. I like my masks. Yeah, it would be nice if, if uh, more places followed the similar convention to in Japan. So in Japan, if you've got a cold and you're not feeling very well, you put a mask on. Um, and it would be nice if that was a general convention. Whether it will be or not, who knows? But uh, something like that would be good. Who knows? But I'm, I am willing to sign up for this. Like I said, I got, you know, the fashion statement that it makes, the fact that I haven't gotten sick, camaraderie with others. I'm, I'm on board. So we'll see. I'm not ready to give it up yet. <laughs> we will see how that happens. Um, but speaking of huge impacts across uh, the planet we called Earth, we're going to dive into Ginkopolis today. This has long been a favorite of mine. Did I introduce you to it, Martin? I don't remember. You did indeed. You, uh, in fact, we, uh, I got you to teach Cindy and, and, I, and me how to play the game, and you taught it to us over, over what is your, um, That was the decision as to whether I would uh, go ahead and buy the new reprint. So, yes, uh, you taught it to us. You got us into it. So, and we're very happy with that. I am so excited to hear that. I, I definitely have had a lot of people reach out and say that my enthusiasm for this game has driven them to seek out one of the, you know, out of print copies. And now, of course, it is in print again. There has been a reprint uh, in 2021. So that's super exciting that people are going to take a look at this game that I like on so many levels, but maybe I have a few critiques as well. So mm. I'm excited to talk about this with you. This is a little bit of a time travel game. We're going to the year 2212. Um, Ginkgo biloba, the oldest and strongest tree in the world, has become the symbol of a new method for building cities in symbiosis with nature. Humans have exhausted the resources that the Earth offered them, and humanity must now develop cities that maintain a deli delicate balance between resource production and consumption. However, habitable space is scarce, and mankind must now face the challenge of building ever upwards. To develop this new type of city, you will gather a team of experts around you and try to become the best ermine planner for Ginkopolis. So, Ginkopolis, um, published in 2012, designed by Xavier Georges, who is also the designer behind games such as Twa, Carson City, Black Angel, and the recent game Carnegie. The artwork is by Gail Lanurian, who I don't think is known for anything else. I couldn't find any more very well-known games that he'd done the art for, so this is his kind of main known game thing. Published at least currently by Pearl Games, which is just part of the Asmodee Empire. So, you know, it's part of the sprawling mass of Asmodee. Um, officially, it plays between one and five people. The playtime is officially 45 minutes, but we'll have words about that as we go on. 
Um, it used to be a very good game for Heavy Cardboard to talk about because it was totally out of print and only available at ridiculous prices in the secondary market. But it was newly reprinted earlier this year, so now it's easily available. So we're going to have to record this and freeze it for at least a couple of years until it becomes unavailable again. Right. And then on the Plays and Play accounts... Um, I've played it nine times so far, um, a combination of two-player games with Cindy with the cardboard, and then a few plays on Boitage with various counts of people. And Boitage is the, it's a French board game uh, online playing site, correct? Right. They've got a whole bunch of games. I've mostly played uh, Concordia on Boitage, um, but uh, yeah, this turned up on, this was on Boitage for ages, and I've finally got you to t teach us how to do it. Yeah, that was that was an excellent play. So I have had countless plays of Gengopolis over the years. Um, lots of different player counts, though I have not played it solo. And mostly I play this three-player. I do highly recommend it at a three-player count. It seems to really, really shine at that. I have played it at four and five players uh, as well as two-player. The two-player for me does work. I don't have a problem playing it with that. But if I can add one other person in, I think it does ramp up uh, the gameplay and the experience significantly. Four and five-player, I don't tend to enjoy. Um, it starts to, to degrade at that point for me, especially playing at five-player with uh, a bunch of new players. I think it just takes too long and it really causes folks to struggle. If you had a group of experienced Ginkopolis players, then I think playing it at higher player counts could be reasonable. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. So when we have the board on the game on the table, what we're looking at is we have a nine by nine um, set of square tiles. Um, nine by nine, three by three. Yes. There's nine tiles, three by three. That is true. Um, and uh, the nine tiles come in three colors. And then surrounding these nine, this, nine, this three by three grid um, is a bunch of circular tiles, mm -hmm. which will indicate how the um, board will expand. So as one of the tiles that we've got on the board, you also have a deck of 18 cards and there's one card per tile. So half the cards right. correspond to the circular tiles, half the cards correspond to the square tiles. Those are shuffled up, and you deal four of these cards to each player. Mm -hmm. Then on your turn, the player looks at their four cards, and that indicates where they can carry out an action. So of all of those spots on the board, only four of them are places where you can do something. Right. And the thing that you can do, you've actually only got three choices. You can either exploit a spot, which basically means you get stuff. You can urbanize, which means you take one of those circular tiles and you push it outwards and put a new square tile um, to replace it. Mm -hmm. Or you can build, which is where you put a square tile on top of an existing square tile. So that's the urbanize is building the city out and the building is building the city up. Mm-hmm. If you do the build action where you're building up, you take the card that corresponds to that and you put it into your tableau and you build up over the course of the game a growing tableau that gives you bonuses and various things um, during the game. 
If you're building out or if you're exploiting, you just put it into a discard pile and that will get recycled um, later on. Then the free cards you have left in your hand, you pass to the next player, take three player cards from the, the other next player, draw one card to bring yourself up to four, and you continue playing the game. What you're aiming to do, of course, is to win by scoring victory points. Some of these you do by the various actions that you're doing. Um, but the two main sources of victory points come from the cards that you're in your tableau. Mm -hmm. Some of them score victory points for all sorts of different schemes and reasons. But the other one is an area majority based on um, the pieces that you place on that board that's growing up. I mentioned earlier that the square tiles come in three different colours. Um, those colours form districts. And a mm -hmm. district is two tiles of the same colour, but at least two tiles, sorry, of the same colour. They're all orthogonally next to each other. Mm -hmm. And whoever's got the most influence in each of these districts scores area majority. There's a, a little bit less a second place. And those area majority scores, combining with the scores from your tableau, are what gives you the, the biggest source of victory points. So that's what you're focused on. Getting right. good cards that score victory points and building up these um, area majorities. Yes, that is exactly what you're looking at. And that is interesting in itself, that gameplay and how that works together. But for me... It's the gaming experience that this story of Ginkopolis tells. So, you know, we started out, okay, there's these uh, three by three grid of tiles, and then we have our circle that are numbered, and then we have our circular tiles on the outside we talked about, the urbanization tiles that are alphabetical. So numbers and letters, all clearly and nicely delineated. That's the board you're going to be playing with. This is the city that you need to make because humanity has destroyed the earth, you know, impending doom. Um, and now we're building it back up and we need to be strategic about this. We need to be careful about this. And our options are going to be limited by those cards that you just mentioned. Right. And we're drafting those cards. So we get four cards in our hand. We know that we're going to get to use one of them. But we also know that we're going to pass three to the next player. And so we also know what options are potentially coming up for the players that are sitting around this perfect city with us. And we have to strategize how that's going to impact their goals and our goals. And then we get to the perfect development that is just to me, the most amazing thing about Gink Ginkopolis. We get to the fact that when you use a card to build, when you build up, you are going to actually take the card you used, meaning the tile that you just covered, and put that card into your tableau for those points that we're talking about that you want to score and as well as additional actions that you're going to take every time you do one of those three actions you have available to you exploit urbanize or build you're going to get an additional bonus for doing those by taking that card into your tableau and at the beginning of the game that's all you see all you want to do 
is get those resources behind your screen, right? Because we're hiding how many resources we have. So maybe somebody else doesn't know exactly what we have available to us coming up. They know, as we just said, that potentially I'm handing you, Martin, this amazing card for you. It's the, you know, K urbanization card, or it's the number two um you know, ginkgo card, and I know that you want to build in that district. So I know I'm giving you maybe some benefits, but do you even have resources left to build? Do you even have what you need to make that happen? It's hidden trackable information. I can try to keep track of it, but I also need to be paying attention to what I have and what I need. So to me, this is the chaos that ensues from that three by three beautiful, you know, grid surrounded by urbanization tiles that we began with. Now we have the chaos of this card drafting (laughs) and everything that we're going to do to this world that we're trying to rebuild. So that's this experience that unfolds before us. And what to me is totally, it's appropriate. The theme goes to this as we're going back to build up this world. What do you think? It's interesting to hear you talk about the theme. Um, We'll get more into this a bit later on. But to me, I don't really see much theme in this game at all. (laughs) Um, It really is just square and circular tiles and but well, I think we'll 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 get into that as as we go through. But it is an interesting difference that you definitely see that sense of a theme there. That's and that's what I wanted to point out here because we're talking about okay, what's on the table? And for me, it's it's your new world, it's world building that you're doing here, and to, and that theme really comes through to me. And it can be my imagination, right? Maybe I'm seeing more there than other people see, but that is where the magic happens to me, is where re-inhabiting this world of Ginkopolis. Uh, so a good counterbalance there, I think, where you're seeing mm. the gameplay mechanisms and you're focused on that, or are you seeing the potential of this new world-building experience that the theme is trying uh, to present? Let's discuss the five factors um, that give this game its weight uh, as we are want to do. Complexity, rules complexity, overhead, mechanical complexity. What are your thoughts there, Martin? I, I'm going to say that I think this game is really very simple in terms of complexity. I mean, after all, there are only three actions in the game. None of the actions are particularly complicated. Um, the flow of movement around the turns is really very straightforward. Um, I think in terms of the how many rules there are in place, this really ought to be a very simple game. All right. And I see that. And I always try to teach this game from that aspect of this has very simple rules overhead. All you have is these three actions that are laid out for you with um, some, you know, graphic design, some icons on the back of your player screen. And you need to pick. You're going to exploit. You're going to urbanize. You're going to build. That's it. And as simple as that seems to explain, seems to be to explain, it's 
a lot harder for people to understand the first time they're seeing it, I have found. Mm. And it tends to be that there is a lot of complexity to how those three actions interact because you are at the same time incorporating a lot of mechanisms. You're drafting. You're at the beginning, you don't have to worry so much about your end game scoring that you're pulling into your tableau. But from the first card you play, you need to be starting to think about what you're going to have in your tableau to obtain resources while playing cards. Or you're going to end up sitting there having to exploit over and over and over again in order to get the resources you need to take any actions. And one of the things that I've seen people run into as they're playing this game is no one wants to exploit. And especially early on in the game, they don't want to exploit. They want the resources they've gained by um, the cards that you begin with in your tableau. They want those resources to get them through several hands exchanges. And that's not always the case. It depends on what cards come into your hand, what resources you gained at the beginning of the game, whether it was tiles or your little resource tokens that you exchange um, to put out there for that area control of those tiles you're building or expanding upon in urbanization. You need to have enough of those to take those actions, and you don't always have that. And every game of Gangopolis is different because you're starting with those different resources and different cards uh, that are coming together in your hand as you draft. So exploiting is a real thing that you may have to do early and often. And I find that that tends to be where people get stuck. Yeah, and I think what that goes into is the fact that although the rules complexity I think is very minimal. There's a lot of planning decisions. Yes. So we, we've got this little document that we use to kind of make an agenda to put some order onto onto these podcasts when we do them. And I've got one simple bullet point for complexity just saying it's simple. And then a whole host of bullet points under the decisions because there's so many decisions to think about. Yes. You're looking at those area majorities and you're thinking, oh, can I get my um influence into these areas as they grow and the area majority a particularly uh, to me unique aspect of this game is that the areas are so fluid not just can you grow areas by urbanizing them out you can actually take an existing colored tile and change its color and when you do that that can split an area into two or it can fuse two areas together so you've got this very dynamic area majority system going on. I mean, it's not like uh, an El Grande or a Tammany Hall or an Inish where you have your areas, you can move things in and out the areas, but the areas are static. No, in this game, the areas themselves are changing size and composition and breaking up and growing and evolving in a kind of very sort of evolve a tree growing kind of metaphor. Um, and so you're playing an area majority game on this very fluid areas. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to think about your tableau. Yes. Um, I talked about putting cards in your tableau. You're looking at that and you're saying, well, I want to, some of these cards will give me bonus, extra bonuses when I act. So I'm building up an engine. But at the same time, I want to get good card scoring. So I'm thinking of every card I come across. Not just do I want to play this for the area majority game, but maybe I want to capture this card for my tableau building. 100%. And then. 
I'm gonna I wanna do this. I wanna put these um cards on the board. I've got a bunch of tiles to choose from. One of the things I didn't mention in the in the initial overview was these tiles are numbered from one to twenty. When I place a tile, if I place a tile that's a lower number than the tile I'm covering over, I have to pay a penalty in victory points. So I'm thinking, oh, I've got to manage my numbers of tiles. Do I want to reserve my high number tiles for later on? Um, I've got thinking about the color of the tiles. Um, so there's a real decision about which tile I choose to act on this spot that I'm deciding to play. Then I'm looking at my cards thinking, I can't give this card to Jess. She's, she'll be, if she's got the right card, she'll be able to do a really good play with it. So I've got that to worry about. And then I've got to balance the resources in, in my hand. There's a lot to think about in terms of planning in this game. And yes. it kind of hits you right up front. Um, exactly. It immediately strikes you that there's so much to, to think about. And see, I would say that that overlaps a little bit into complexity because that is part of the mechanical complexity. The fact that all these mechanisms and how they work together does require planning, which is, you know, like you said, the segment we're about to go into or the section of planning, but it still is the mechanical complexity. So when I'm explaining this game and I'm doing that simple rules overhead, this is where people's thought processes tend to go right away is into that mechanical mm. complexity is, okay, but if I make one of these three choices, which I hear you, three simple choices, but when I choose one, what you're telling me is that it is an, an, a catastrophic domino effect that is going to impact everything and everyone at this table. And that's where I think it starts to go into mechanical complexity even though that is part of the planning phase. So I'm kind of discussing this from the aspect of how difficult this game can be to teach to another player, because getting them to simplify and say, just three actions, it's just three actions, sounds all well and good, but most people are even in that initial description of those three actions and in that initial description we just gave of what you're seeing out there on the table are very well aware or becoming aware of the mechanical complexity that those three actions and how they interact with everything you have available to you is huge. Yeah, and this is, I mean, where we talk about what uh, complexity of games, I mean, I often feel we it's good to separate it into two dimensions. And, and my mental model has always been there's rules complexity, which is what can I do, which in this game is three actions, no problem. And then there's the it's strategic depth, which is the what should I do? Mm -hmm. And that's where this game explodes. So with the planning, what forethought, what thinking ahead, what organizing do we need to do to go ahead and score those victory points and hopefully uh, score more victory points than our fellow players? We talked about area majority. We need that for the end of the game. And that is a big part of Gingopolis. But I also think... When I was originally taught this game, I'm going to tell a little story about this. The first time I was introduced to Ginkopolis, no one told me about the area majority scoring until two moves till the end of the game. 
Um, there was a reason for this. I was taught by board gamer Steph, and she this is her favorite game. She passed on that love to to me. Um, so complete credit to board gamer Steph um, on BGG, all the meeples of the rainbow for instilling the love of Gimgopolis in me. But in that first rules teach, she felt that these rules were actually too complex to get into the area majority scoring at the end. And she had found that if she told people about that a little later on in gameplay, that they were more willing to make some moves and do some things and get used to the game before kind of, you know, being a deer in the headlights of what should I do uh, to continue the game. So, but she made a tactical error. Usually the game had gone a little longer and we were about 30 minutes in and she realized we only had a couple moves left. And she says, oh, by the way, by the way, there's area majority here. You're going to score that at the end. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> there's what? <laughs> yeah. And there's a bunch of points from this, this and this. And I'm like, but I haven't done any of the things. And so we finished out the game and I had been solely concentrating on doing the other things that are available in this game, improving my tableau, engine building, and scoring cards for endgame scoring. I'd also been, there's an ability to get points as you're playing, and I'd been getting a lot of points in the gameplay. So we revealed, and the reason I bring this up is I won. They, against two players that knew about majority scoring or area majority scoring at the end, I actually won the game because I had gotten so many points from the other paths that you can take to get victory scoring points that I did well enough to beat them. Um, I think we, Steph was like, we're playing again. Immediately we played again. Um, and I fell in love with this game. And part of that was because I learned in my first play that while area majority is a part of Gingopolis, it is not the only path to victory. It, this game gives you multiple ways to get there. And you can and need to look at all those ways and not feel so pigeonholed into, I have to make sure that so-and-so doesn't get this card, or I need to do this, or I need to do that. That you look at all of the mechanical complexity in this and all of the paths to victory that there can be. So that's... That's kind of a story for me of like where planning in this game can seem complex and can seem overwhelming, but you have tons of choices and maybe don't pigeonhole yourself to thinking, oh, I didn't get the right cards this turn or, oh, I don't have enough resources or, oh, my tableau is completely different than what I'm used to in gameplays of Gangopolis. Try something new. Do something exciting. See where that leads and you might be surprised. the complexity in the planning side yes um, the third item on the list is luck and random factors what do you think about that how lucky do you feel in G Ginkopolis 
I, there's certainly a lot of randomness in this game because um, we talked about how uh, one of the, the th things you have to do is manage your tiles um, that you're able to play onto the board. Well, these tiles are drawn randomly from the pool. So it's, a, it's completely random as to whether I'll get high blues or medium scoring reds or whatever kind of tiles. And they make a huge difference to what I'm going to do, mm -hmm. uh, the tiles that I could potentially play. And then you've also got the randomness from the cards because you can only act on the four spaces of the cards you've got. And those cards, to some extent, are mitigated by drafting, but it's still the one you draw. It's still what happened to be available for them to draft from. So the combination of the tiles and the cards, I think, do add quite a lot of randomness. Um, you can't say to yourself, oh, I know what I'm going to be going to do next turn or two turns down the track, because random things will come up and upset that. Right. Yeah, you don't know what other folks are going to be doing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of luck and random factors about what is going to come into your hand uh, and what you're going to have at any given time. You may be planning for some big move, and then for a few turns, you just don't get the card you need to be able to build up because of the tiles that you have. So there's definitely a lot of converging uh, randomness in this game. But there's also ways to mitigate that a little bit. You talked about the fact that you can pay to change a uh, tile color. You can pay in points, and you don't necessarily want to do this, to drop down a tile number instead of making it um, ascending number value. So there's ways to mitigate that randomness, uh, but they're costly. So there's that involved with it as well. It's, it's an interesting aspect of the game that, um, I mean, certainly some people are up. I can see how some people are going to be very turned off by the amount of randomness in the game. But it certainly isn't a, a degree that overwhelms the skill in the game, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. um, you have to manage that randomness, and you can definitely build um, good play around it. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, so game length, the stated game length is 45 minutes. What have you found in regards to game length when you're playing? I certainly haven't found that. Um, <laughs> for Cindy and I, we, we play it in about an hour, sometimes a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could imagine that if you were really experienced, you could probably get it down to 45, if, particularly if you're cracking along. But I think most of the time you're going to be spending longer on it. But it's you're not going to be you know, multiple... Uh, uh, you know, many, many hours. It, it's it's a one to two hour game as, as far as I'm concerned. I agree with that. And I do agree that experience matters. Um, the type of gamers that you're playing with matters. I have absolutely played it uh, three player in 45 minutes to an hour, but that is very indicative of uh, the folks I was playing with in that they were super experienced and folks that don't tend to AP. They see the multiple paths to victory and, and are pushing 
levers or pulling levers, right? They just want to see what's going to happen when they do this this time. But I don't know that that's the way to play this game. It it can be uh, very cerebral. It can be something where you want to consider heavily those actions and um, even kind of talk it out and joke about what you're doing as you're going around and taking your actions because the actions are not simultaneous. Um, you draft simultaneously and plan your action, but then you carry it out in turn order. So there can be some discussion there. And that in itself also has some interaction, because if I go first and I build here, that may change the resources you get from building next to me. But you've already made the decision. So that's what's going to happen. And while that's not necessarily, you know, random, as we said before, that player interaction can feel like you now got luck of the draw when you were planning out your action um, beforehand. So those things definitely, I think, can contribute to game length. But I can say that when I finished a game of Gangopolis, other than playing at the five player count, um, when I've played at three players and less, and even usually when I play at four player with experienced players, I don't feel like it overstays its welcome. Uh, but it definitely isn't 45 minutes. Getting it. Yes. Getting it. So here I feel the real, there seems to be a, this this real weirdness about this game. In that, as I said at the beginning, the rules are really dog simple. Mm -hmm. And yet you read through BGG and people constantly say how unintuitive and how difficult it is to get hold of this game, to, to, to think about this game. I mean, it was hard to get hold of physically in the past. But, <laughs> True. I mean, it's just you know difficult to get into it. I, I was contemplating that because I, I like to read through all the reviews and comments on BGG to, to get a sense of what the broad view is of a game. And I thought to myself, well, the, the, the mechanisms in this game are very familiar, but the way they're put together is something about the way they're put together that makes it all very unintuitive. But then when you commented and talking about it earlier on, just as, as we were talking now, it, I realized there's another factor, which is there's something about the way it just bombards you. There's no way to ease into this game. It mm -hmm. kind of just shocks you with a, a sort of shock and awe of just a few mechanisms blowing out of control in some weird combinatorial explosion. Yep. And as a result, it tends to get that weird effect. Um, and so it's a, it's a very curious game in that sense. Um, it should be simple, but it doesn't come out come over that way well that's the thing it's not a difficult game it's just that all of those com combinations can paralyze you because you know that every single thing that you do impacts every single future action um and there's not a lot of ways other than taking that exploit action to get out of it once you've made a decision and it can feel like in this game that you're making a series of bad decisions. That 
in itself, as much as I love the game, can make it feel like it, you're not getting the game. So I think people are getting it. They're getting the idea of exploit, urbanize, build. Anyone can understand that. That doesn't mean that they get what they should do. So like you said, that separation of strategy and what moves should I make is where Gingopolis becomes very strategic and very difficult to plan out. So you do need to understand that and realize that this is something you're going to struggle with as far as making decisions. And you should enjoy that if you're diving into it, that the fact that your choices matter, every single one of them matters, um, is something that you have to understand with this. And for me, that suspension of needing to know uh, is something I, str- you know, like how this actual action I'm going to take right now is going to play out for the totality of the game, what the impact is. Usually in many games, even games I would categorize as far more complex than Gingopolis, there's a mental math that can be done where I can min-max. I can say, well, this is going to give me eight points, but cost Martin six points. So that's actually the two points I need and I should do this versus, you know, this is going to be something over here that's going to give me a straight, you know, uh, point average. You can do that in a lot of really, really heavy games. I'm not saying you should, but you can. And that way it feels like you have this level of control that I feel like doesn't exist in Gengopolis. So many moving parts, so much interplayability mm-hmm. that planning out your moves to that level isn't actually possible. And if you can play it knowing that I think this is good and have fun with it, those are the folks I've seen have the most fun, especially playing Gengopolis for the first time, not worrying too much about the avalanche that each move causes and just just going with it, just going with those. OK, I got three moves. Let's see how this plays out. Let's see what that does. Um, and again, hearkening back to why Steph didn't tell me about the area uh, majority control, right? She figured, well, that's just going to paralyze her. We're going to tell her what she needs to know when she needs to know it so that she doesn't worry too much. Just have fun with it. Just see what these three things can do together. Yeah, you definitely need to... I mean, I believe in going into all new games with her. Let's just press buttons, pull levers, and see what happens, um, and not worrying too much what the, re- the outcome is. Um, this game, I think, even more than most, um, benefits from that kind of, of attitude. 100%. Something else I mentioned as well is, um, and one of the things that makes it harder for me in some ways to assess some aspects of this game, is as I've played all of my multiplayer games of this on Watershire. And that does make it more difficult to get the hang of the game. Um, it's actually quite a nice implementation if you know the game. It keeps mm-hmm. track of things for you. There's some fiddly things we'll talk about later on that it manages to cope with really well. But the problem is it also, because it's doing a lot of automation for you, you often, things happen and you don't understand what happened. And this is particularly true here because in uh, Ginkopolis, you're all simultaneously choosing what you're going to do, but then you resolve the actions one at a time. Mm-hmm. But in Watershire, it will resolve all of them at once. And so, boom, the whole world's changed. And you're trying to figure out what hell happened there, who did what, what did that, and it can be extra confusing. 
So I do recommend trying it out on Boitageur, but it is seems to be extra hard to follow. It made a big difference to Cindy and, and me when we actually got the cardboard and we played a couple of two-player games on cardboard. And Cindy in particular felt it was much easier to see what was going on once she'd done that than our two initial games on uh, Boitageur. Right. No, that's a really, really good point. And, you know, teaching you both on Boitageur, I felt like, wow, this is amazing. It's so much easier. But I can absolutely see that with my experience and knowing there is fiddliness that we'll get into a little later in the game, having that taken care of online for me made it much easier to play because usually that if I'm running the game, that's what I'm taking care of. So I'm over here distracted by all these other little things that you need to keep um, in your mind as you're playing the game. So it for me, it made it much easier. But if you're starting out and playing the game, yeah, absolutely. These are things that you're going to want to see to better understand how things are happening and interacting and things that you're not going to see online. Good point. So ultimately, I think this game falls as a medium game. I have gotten pushback for putting this on my list of top games that are medium to heavy. Uh, there are some folks that do not consider it a medium to heavy game. But I do think the way that the actions uh, interact and then splay out you know, throughout the course of the game makes this, for me, fall firmly in the medium to heavy uh, category. I'd rate this probably on BGG about a 3.0. Um, what about you? Yeah, I would agree with with medium, um, but this is, I think, is a great example on where a single dimensional level of weight just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've also listened to a, another podcast called The Gaming Moguls, and they do a two-dimensional scale, a number and a letter. I can't remember which way round, but it's basically on the rules complexity, what can I do, and then strategic depth, what should I do? And this is one of these games that very muchly, what can I do is really easy, not complex at all. What should I do is horribly complex. Right. I think it meshes out to a medium, mm -hmm. um, but it, it's you need to listen to all the things that we talked about weight. Um, I mean, I think it's quite right to say, yeah, there's five factors in weight um, and a simple boiling it down to medium in this case really doesn't do the uh, thing justice. Yeah, that's fair. It's it's simple in some regards, heavy in others. And yeah, I think that brings it down to a medium weight for overall gameplay. But there's a lot involved in that uh, as well for consideration. Well, let's review the cardboard. What does the game have in it? The components, the graphic design, the artwork. We've got tiles. Tiles is solid cardboard. You have, yeah. Martin, in front of you the reprint from Pearl Games from 2021. I have in front of me the original um, from Z-Man and Pearl Games from 2012. Um, and yeah, these are nice, heavy, very thick 
cardboard for the tiles. I have had this copy. This is a used copy that I picked up that was extensively played um, by my friend Michelle Rourke, who, who owned it before me, and then kindly let me um, bribe it off of her in exchange of a game she wanted because I wanted it so badly. So this has been played a lot, and these tiles are not lifting at the edge. They're not crumbling. Um, I do take care of my games, but... This has been at conventions that I brought it to, so many people have pulled it out and played it there. It's been shared, and it's looking good as far as tiles and um, the markers that you have, the wooden pieces that you're putting out for your resources and for uh, marking the board. What do you Yeah, and in, in this uh, section, we can also explain why Edward isn't on this podcast, because he can't play this game. There are no yellow player markers There are no yellow game. player markers so on this. he is verboten. Uh, yeah. There is a lovely pink. Uh, I'm a great, great fan of pink player markers, and uh, I'm glad to see that pink is in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say... The, comp the component quality is good, solid stuff. I mean, there's nothing that kind of leaps out at you dramatically. Um, but it's nice. And I do like the fact that with the second edition, they went for these little crane-shaped meeples for the under-construction markers mm -hmm. um, that you need in the game. They're, they kind of add a little uh, je ne sais quoi to things. They do. I have, of course, um, in the older copy, it's gray cylinders. And I have a friend who gave me tiny um, little construction cones. Uh, to use so i have that in my copy as well to use instead of the cylinders so it, i like that they went with cranes but i'm surprised they didn't go with little orange construction cones for the building so we have um box size as well so looking at the box uh, i think they're pretty much the print and the reprint uh the original and the reprint are about the same size about the size of a legal um, size piece of paper, right? Nine by 12 yep. we have here. Uh, so pretty standard. Fits on in the calyx pretty nicely. Yeah, it's what I kind of think of the uh, standard box size and uh, appropriately sized as well. There's, there's enough space to get everything in without it being cramped, but it, you're also not feeling they're swimming around in there. So it's a, it's a good uh, depth all in all. Yeah, especially if you add the expansion in there. I have the experts in as well, and all fits, all works, and yeah, good box size. So graphic design. Um, we have the player screens, and we have some icons on the back of the player screens. I've struggled with getting folks to understand exactly what they're seeing there on the back of the player screens, and it looks like the reprint uh, is exactly the same. How has that worked for you, Martin? Yeah, I haven't. I must admit, uh, well, of course, I've had a weird teaching experience because I've, I've, I was taught the game on Watasha from you. And when I've taught it to other people, I've done it on Watasha. So I've not actually had the uh, the pleasure of teaching this game in cardboard yet. I will do hopefully in a couple of weeks, but uh, haven't had the chance yet. Um, I, yeah, I found to me the iconography worked. Um, I could kind of see how it all fitted together. Um, but then I'm, I'm, I understand iconography quickly. I mean, I, I, I clicked with Race to the Galaxy very, very fast. So if I can understand that iconography, I can understand anything. Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit hard to understand if you don't have experience with the game. Um, now, I understand it very well, and I can explain it 
very well, and it's a good reminder, which is what it's supposed to be. So that's good. But as far as a teaching aid or when you're not familiar with the game, I've seen people struggle with it pretty hard. And I think there could have been improvement made. I wish that the reprint had a little bit better uh, upgrade to the iconography that's on the back of these, just just to help those newer players um, come into Ginkopolis. So... But there was um, the box cover. There was an illustration update to the box cover a little bit. And I like that. I kind of like your box cover. I'm never going to give up my original, but maybe, maybe I'll buy the reprint as well. I tend to do that with games I truly, truly love. I like to have multiple versions of them. Um, So maybe for that reason, uh, I would back it. And those crane meeples. I mean, come on, they're cranes. So. While we're on the graphic design, um, we don't have a really good spot in our uh, template uh, for this, but um, I found really awkward the fact that they name one of the things in this game resources. Um, essentially, there's when you uh, get things. I talked about how when you, you uh, exploit, you get stuff. And there's basically three kinds of stuff in this game. One is victory points. You can sometimes get victory points. One is the tiles that you take from the communal pool um, and the, the tiles that you'll be placing on the board. And then the other is this thing they call resources. Mm-hmm. Now, the resources are, are, they just don't work like I think resources ought to work. Um, they're in your player color. They're actually your ownership markers when you put them on the tiles that you place on the board. So... That kind of, yeah, I can kind of say, yeah, the resources you need to build the thing that you're going to build. But because they're also your ownership marker, they're not disposed of. They're not consumed in the way that resources normally are, which I find really unintuitive. Truly, Um, yes. And then on top of that, it also means you can't use the word resource to mean stuff. Yes. So you can't say, oh, when you exploit, you will gain resources. Well, you'll gain resources, but some of those resources are resources and some of those resources are tiles. It just messes up your entire vocabulary for talking about the game. It, it so, really does. That's. It, I don't tend to now, having taught the game multiple times, call anything resources because I've had to kind of adjust that way of uh, referencing it. I call the victory point markers ginkgo leaves um, and say, you know, like we're trying to do all these ginkgo leaves where, you know, because that's the iconography you have throughout the game is those ginkgo leaves as your victory point markers. And I call those what they call resources um, construction tokens because you are using them to construct. They are still staying out on the board unless they're, you know, influenced by another player. They're staying out of the board to mark that you constructed on that area and how high you constructed on that area, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So I tend to call those construction tokens. Um, And then, of course, you have your building tiles or land tiles. So those are what I tend to reference them, but I completely agree. Resources are what those three things are. And so calling one of them resources, extremely confusing, and it doesn't need to be. Yeah, I don't know whether that was a translation from the French or something or, or what, but it, it, I think it's something that definitely confuses me a little bit when I'm uh, thinking about the game. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so that we've talked about artwork, uh, that kind oh, of coming... actually goes into rulebook clarity and quality, right? Like you, 
if that was a translation error that we're talking about there, if, you know, calling what your items are, your components are the right thing to be intuitive, which you just mentioned on BGG, we have folks who are like, ah, it doesn't feel intuitive. That's just going to add another level of confusion um, to it. Is there anything else about the rule book um, or quality that you have found you or people you're playing the game with struggle with? I haven't had any particular problems with it. Of course, I learned the game from you. I didn't learn it from the rule book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when I've looked things up, it's been pretty straightforward. But again, because there's not very many rules in the game, it, it's not too complicated. Um, there is the explanation of the scoring cards, um, which is sometimes a little bit unclear. There is a little yes. page that that mentions what the scorings are, and it's it 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 it's not bad. I mean, I knew, usually manage to pick up what the card bonuses are. Um, so on the whole, I'd say the rule book's fine. Um, it doesn't strike me as exceptionally good or bad. Um, again, with with relatively simple rules, that should be. Um, straightforward after all. Agreed. So the things I like about it is you have a summary on the back page, and I'm always going to like having this summary that you can reference uh, if you haven't played the game in a while. And I'm often asked to teach this game at conventions. There can be a lot of time in between me playing this game because I, I think the game group, um, especially, you know, pre-COVID times at game days, got sick of me constantly bringing this game out. So uh, this is one that does tend to not hit the table enough that I remember every nuance, or if I'm going to describe it, I want to kind of get a refresher before I do so. The summary helps with that, but there are things that I have found are missing in the summary that then I have to refer into the rule book. So the summary isn't perfect. I love that their card bonuses are detailed. Um, that to me calls me back to um, El Grande has an extensive list of all the cards. And that's always what I hold uh, rule books to right or wrong as, you know, the epitome of what you should show for what your cards are offering you is in El Grande. and. At the back, we have a very truncated card bonuses section that does go over those uh, end game bonuses that you're going to have and the permanent bonuses that you're going to have in your tableau. But definitely they were looking to truncate this and it can be confusing at the times. So I feel like I often translate this for players. I might have the rule book out. Players pick it up to go look up a card bonus and It's tricky because they don't want to tell me what card bonus they have in their hand, but they have a question about it because the wording's a little off. So that's a little frustrating as well, though I appreciate that they put that in there. And then we have, of course, the solitary version I cannot speak to. I have not played it solitary. I think that's actually a goal for myself now. I'm going to sit down and probably get that done. And then the usual segments where we're talking about your overview, your game components, and those are still a little bit confusing in their layout that it's telling you in order what you need to do. But often again, when I'm going back because the summary didn't answer a question and I need to look for something, I'm often finding that paragraphs are like after an image when I thought it would be before. It's just, again, I think these are the things that are leading folks as well or compounding that, uh, 
folks saying that this is unintuitive. Um, when you have th components that aren't named in a way that would come to mind easily to folks, and when you have a rule book that you're having to flip through the pages of, and maybe the summary doesn't give you everything you need in one place, you're going to start to think that this game is not intuitive. Uh, so I think that that unfortunately compounds this a little bit. And I wish in the reprint they had done a little more uh, to update that or give it a refresh that would help newer players coming into the game. No, I actually made a, uh, a little player play rate informally for Cindy and I to use, which uh, Cindy found quite helpful. They kind of listed things through a bit more. Um, and I'll, I'll... I love it. So there could be a Martin Fowler Ginkopolis player aid out on BGG. There could Is be. I, I want to try it out with some more people first to see uh, see how useful it actually turns out to be. It's not terribly well designed, but at least it sort of walks you through what you need to do. Um, Excellent. That may be a bit better. But this is a game that could definitely do with a decent player aid, I think. The, the back of the screen Completely is not enough. Agree. I mean, not just is the back of the screen not enough in that I don't think it's very clear. It's also the back of the screen, which makes it really awkward to look at. <laughs> very good point. I mean, you're using this to hide what you have behind your screen, the totality of your resources, not those just little resource markers we talked about. So lifting it up to look at what your options are is not, not going to be good. Right. So... Mentioning the player aid as well, I, I should say something about the artwork. Um, I okay. must admit, the artwork, it's, it's got, as I said, the designer, the, the artist for this, it's the only major game that they've done. And it does have a kind of nice, quirky, cartoony style that's actually quite nice. Um, mm -hmm. The tiles in particular have this lovely progression. If you look at any color tile, the number ones show a kind of early stage, first stage buildings. And then as the numbers go up, that set of buildings gets more and more sophisticated. And you can really see the progression with each color, which is a really lovely touch. I must admit, while I'm playing the game, it kind of fades away into the background and I don't really notice it that much. But when I stop and think about it, I think, oh, yeah, they put a lot of work into making those tiles work that way. And it, I really want to you know, state my appreciation for the artist's thinking there. That is a really good point, because that's something I've overlooked in gameplay of Gengopolis as well. I'm just so focused on building up and what numbers are out there and what resources I'm going to get if I build um, with adjacency. I'm not looking at the little buildings that I'm actually uh, creating. So good point. Good call out. That is, that is really neat. I'm looking at them right now and you can see them uh, expanding, building and, mm. and getting bigger. So that, now we get into the setup, the teardown, the teaching, the learning of this game. There's a lot there to discuss. The setup, really, really quick. I mean, I store Ginkopolis in such a way that the setup is super fast because we're talking about the one, two, and three tile in the three different type of resources that we have so that we get that three by three grid. Random setup. 
that's not hard. And then we have our circular urbanization uh, little tiles that are in the alphabetical, and you're putting those out in alphabetical order. Again, pretty simple. Get it on the table, shuffle up your cards, decide what people are going to start with for their starting tableau, and dive in. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I find setup pretty quick. But it's quick because we spend the time organizing everything when we tear it down. And that's really the, and there is time tearing down because you've got to make sure, oh, I've got all of these cards. I've got to sort them into suit and order. And I've got to make sure I separate the starting tiles and the regular tiles. You, I, you do have to put it, invest some time into tear down in order to make the setup go smoothly. Um, I also want to make a point with the setup as well is that this game does not take up a huge amount of table space. Um, we no. can play this on a on a on a smaller table. We don't need the larger mm -hmm. um, table for this, and that's quite nice. Uh, be particularly nice once we get into the summer and we want to play on the screened-in porch, which only has a small table. Yeah, fair. I mean, it needs to be definitely a level uh, playing surface, and it needs to be flat in that it's not like my patio table. I could envision playing it on because there's not a lot of pieces to fly away um, and you're holding the cards in your hand. But if you have slats, then you're going to run into issues because these tiles need to lay flat and have some adjacency. So that that's the only thing that I would think of uh, there as far as the, the table space and planning ahead as to where you're going to play the game. What about teaching? How how about the teaching for you? I have a lot of thoughts on this. I'll let you go first. Well, I've taught it twice to folks, both times on Boitageur, Um, and I think that makes it particularly difficult to teach. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to teach it with cardboard and seeing how it goes. Um, and I'll leave the rest of the discussion on teaching to you since you've done it a lot more than I have. So I have struggled with teaching this game. Um, I tend to teach games usually by theme. And even if the theme is pasted on for whatever game that I'm teaching, I'll come up with some creative story. I'm sure you've seen me do this, Martin, <laughs> where it makes sense in some way thematically, because that's what works for my lizard brain. It makes sense to me if there's some thematic reason for what I'm doing. It helps me relate to the game and to the actions that I'm taking. And then it becomes intuitive. If I can understand the thematic reason for what I'm doing, just lets me recall it easier. So I tend to teach this game from a thematic standpoint. I think having started that way and done that early on, that's where I started to see the holes in doing so because some people were not relating to the theme of Gengopolis or what we were doing in the game. They struggled with my reasoning as to no, 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 but we're building up and then we're building out and then we're getting the resources and it's good. And they're like, well, and then there's the tableau. There's this people started to really question why and what and the strategy of what they were doing. So I honestly, I just, I kept trying. I kept seeing what works for some people, what works for others. And in this game, part of the reason I struggled to teach it is because I haven't found that there's one right answer to that. Um, some people respond to me explaining the theme of it and what we're doing for rebuilding Earth. Some people really want more the engineering side. Just tell me what the mechanisms are and how those interact so I can start to make some strategic decisions. And 
then some folks just struggle with that interplay. And I kind of have to tell them to relax, push buttons, see how it goes on your first play. Don't worry about it uh, too much. For myself, I understand this game more from a game development standpoint. I see why we have to take some cards into our tableau. Those would be the cards we use to build. Why? Because we just took that tile out of the game. If you take a tile and place it over a one ginkgo leaf tile, you can't have that card in your card draft anymore. If you do, the next person who receives the one um, ginkgo tile card can't play it because it's covered by whatever tile I placed over it. So I love that that means that that card goes into your tableau. So for some people, I try to actually explain the development and design of the game as a means to understand what you're doing and why the build action puts a card into your tableau, whereas the urbanize action doesn't. Um, It gives you resources for orthogonal adjacency of where you build. And then the exploit action feels like something that's super limited, but you need to do it. And you're going to have to accept that and do it sometimes and maybe build up your tableau so you get resources at the same time that you do something that you feel like is a wasted action that really isn't a wasted action. So I actually teach the game or have maybe five teaches for the game. And I try to gauge who I'm teaching to kind of make that work for them um, and answer their questions up front because there tend to be a lot of questions as you're teaching this for that strategic complexity. And well, what should I do? I know it's only these three, but which one should I do? And they still struggle though with, but why does the build action make it go into my tableau and the Mm -hmm. urbanize action doesn't? Um, So that comes back to that intuitive nature, trying to explain that and get people on board with the effects of those three simple actions. Yeah, that's interesting because I, when I've been thinking about, because one of my things I like to do is fantasize and plan out how I'll be teaching a game. Um, And when I've been thinking about teaching the game, I haven't been thinking about the theme at all. I mean, totally, this, to me, this is a game that is all about the mechanisms and there's not much theme there. And as a result, I wouldn't use the theme to try to explain it. I mean, I, I can go, I can wax lyrical on theme, as you know, with, mm-hmm. when, I, when I did yes. my brass teach. Um, but right. it depends on the game. And for me, this is a mechanism game. So when I teach it, it will be very, very dry mechanism style. But as I said, I, I haven't tried teaching it in cardboard. And I, that's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Yeah. And you mentioned, I mean, it is tricky to teach um online because people aren't seeing those components themselves so hopefully that'll actually make it easier uh for you to bring it to even more folks because i can see that being uh, a little bit of a hurdle for folks who are seeing the game for the first time and not getting to handle those components and see all of the stuff that you're doing as a result of those actions because that's what we're talking about here when i'm when i'm teaching i'm really much trying to focus on here's the result here's what this does and seeing that in person i think does uh add a layer of understanding that you can't get 
from the online services. So, so something else to mention in this bit, I think, because we talked about setup and teardown and teaching and learning, but there is also this game also has a kind of weird bit of maintenance during the game. Mm -hmm. um, so. I mentioned the fact that you during each turn you're typically discarding cards. Unless you're putting a card in your tableau, your other two actions always discard a card. And eventually, of course, you're going to run the, your draw deck down and you need to cycle the deck. Right. But what happens when you do that is you have to look at all of the tiles that have added to the city, find the cards of those tiles, and put them into the deck. Now, to help you do that, they give you these little crane meeples. And the idea is every time you put a a new tile onto the deck, you also put a crane meeple on there. But it's very easy to forget to do that. Yes. Um, one little tip that we discovered um, the last couple of times we played it is um, when you're doing your simultaneous planning of your move, you mark that you're ready by putting the card um, that you, where you're going to place it face down in front of you to say, I've decided. And if you're doing an, a, a build or an urbanize, you also put the tile face down as well. And that indicates, okay, I'm ready now, um, and you wait for everybody to be ready. When you do that, we've got the convention of also putting the crane on the, on the tile as well, mm. and that mm -hmm. helps to remind you to put the crane onto the board when you need to. And that made a big difference to us at getting the crane to be more um, present. But it's still a bit of a pain when you go through that deck refresh phase. You've got to sort of sit down, you've got to make sure you pull the cards out for each new crane that you've got in there. Um, if somebody's forgotten it, you're going to not have the card in there, and that's important. So if you're a bit unsure, you double-check all the ones that are there, and it, it is a bit of a faff um, to do that. It's, it's more than the sort of the shuffling that you do in Dominion or something of that kind, because um, you have to do this extra card maintenance. Um, and that, that is a bit fiddly. Yes, that definitely adds another layer of what you're doing in this game and you talked about how online that stuff is actually done for you when you go to reconstitute the deck so you don't have to worry about that as much when you're playing online but when you're in person you're gonna have to go and resolve that i like the interactivity i think of that because even in the rule book it calls out working with your fellow players to get that done Right. Somebody's looking at all the cranes that you have out on the board, seeing which which cards for those tiles need to be added into the deck. And somebody's going through those three different colors of cards and getting them into it. But it's a little bit of a pause, right? Because you're taking time to do maintenance and then get back into the flow of the game. I like your fix for it, though. We've started, you know, putting the crane on the tile before resolving. Yeah. That seems to work. It does for us. definitely help keep that in mind, so that you're not constantly trying to remember that. I can say in many of the plays that I've had, there's there's people who are like, "Oh, was that? Oh, did you put out the, in my case, gray cylinder? You know, so that we can make sure we resolve that." And that is something that you have to keep in mind with every build action um and it sounds intuitive oh i put this in my tableau i did a build action so now i need to make sure i put the cylinder out but when you're in the midst of a game that's yeah. just something that pulls you out of it a little bit yeah we were forgetting so. all the time um and this, mm -hmm. this seems to have helped uh, with that
so that's the flow of the game. Now we get to yes. the, the key point. What makes this game enjoyable? What's fun about this? All right, what do you think? Well, I'm going to start with by saying it is an extremely interactive game. This is not... Oh, for sure. This is the opposite of the, the last review of Obsession, where it's definitely a heads-down, I-don't-need-to-look-at-what-anybody-else-is-doing game. This is completely the opposite. You're always aware of what other people are doing. You're watching that area control. You're getting some sense of what people are likely to score off. Um, this is a very intensely um, interactive game, even by the standard of every majority games, which are usually pretty interactive. Um, this, I think, yes. is particularly so. Yeah, definitely it is. And that's, I think, what some people struggle with. Like, oh, but what's going to happen here? Do I invest my time here? Do I worry about what they're going to do? Do I go ahead and, you know, wipe the cards that I have in my hand and use my little token option to do that so that they don't get this super great card that I know they want? How much do I try to block, prevent, and then also plan for the blocking and interaction from other players? How is that going to look? And having the choices that you're making in the game play out in a revolving turn order is a big part of that because you don't even necessarily know what that game board is going to look like by the time you take the action you decided at the beginning of the round. If you're the last person to go, it could change what resources you receive. And so those are big decisions um, and a lot of interactivity, 100%. So you're playing together. You should like the people you're playing with and maybe be prepared for a few or more than a few glory to Romes as you're, you're playing it out. And yet, interestingly, it also plays really well with two, which mm -hmm. is unusual for an area-majority game. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost standard. You say, oh, it's an area-majority game. And I, I avoid those for two reasons. One, they don't play well with two, and mm -hmm. I want to play games with Cindy, so you know, that rules them out. But also, Cindy doesn't like area-majority games when she plays uh. them with multiple people. So double reason to avoid all area-majority games. Mm -hmm. But this plays well with two, and Cindy loves it. So it's, that's clearly whacked. Um, and I don't know why it is that it works so well in an unusual case, but one thing that definitely leaps to my mind that may be a factor in all of this is that dynamic quality I talked about early on. The fact that you can flip colours, mm -hmm. changing the shape and configuration, splitting uh, areas up or fusing them together, it gives the area majority... It's a whole new spin on area majority. And that I really love about this game. It's, it's, right. It really makes it feel quite different to any other area majority game I've played. Yeah, that's very, very unique. And I think that's really interesting that you point that out, that despite being era majority and something that maybe Cindy wouldn't like or something that normally wouldn't play well at two players, this actually turns that on its head. And that's what I find with it. it it's so unique in how the gameplay works that it's not what you would expect from these three simple actions and the mechanisms that you're playing with in this tile laying uh, tableau building resource management game. It isn't that doesn't really do it justice uh, to explain those mechanisms because the unique way that those all interact actually changes them 
in a significant way and changes the gaming experience in a significant way. That truly hits the nail on the head for me of why I think Gingopolis is such a great game, because it changes things the way we think about or have to think about these simple gaming mechanisms in the way that they work together. And yeah, that unique presentation is what makes it shine for me. But yeah. So engine building on the Tableau, it's limited because you're doing it with only one of your three actions, but it's super effective, right? Because you're potentially scoring end game bonus points with this. You're maybe gaining resources to limit the number of times you have to take a turn to exploit. Um, You're building up this tableau that is going to be super important to save you turns that you need to take and let you maximize your actions. Yeah, and that's particularly interesting because of that combination with the with area majority i don't tend to associate i've been thinking about the, the classic area majority games i've played they don't have any engine building quality to Mm-mm. them right. and what's more it's even bigger than that because even without the engine building this game has a quality of acceleration that you can you move slowly early on in the game but you can do much more later on in the game and that's partly because of the engine building but also because the resources that you can gain from doing various actions on this game become greater as you build up. Yep. So if I'm exploiting a, a one-tile city, I just get one piece of stuff. But if it's a three-tile city, I get three pieces. Mm-hmm. And now that what that means is that I've got a lot more stuff to work with later on in the game. And again, that accelerating quality that I'm able to do more later in the game, it's a very common feature of Euro games, but it isn't a common feature of games of this strong area majority quality. So that fusion of acceleration and area majority is, I think, a really interesting aspect of what makes this game so much fun. Right. And I mean, you just kind of touched on the balance that is there, too, because we have building and we have urbanization. So building out or building up and you're building your engine and that tableau by building up. But at the same time, you still have the ability to get resources by building out. And so balancing that, how much do I want to go for points by doing those urbanization actions and just taking resources straight from my action on the board and maybe some from my tableau? Or how much do I want to build up and build my tableau for later? Do I go all in for that first? Because like you said, having that engine built right away is going to give me, it's going to maximize that, how many times I get to pull those resources for future actions that I take that match what's in my tableau or do i just go super early to get what i need to build up for big moves to get those end game scoring cards into my tableau and then make sure i'm doing that and as i referenced the area majority part of it even though we're calling this an area majority that's just one mechanism i've played the game in one ignoring that completely Mm. um so it's not necessarily it's just not it's not any one thing it's all of those things in a really balanced way combined that when so many games tell you multiple paths to victory um 
I kind of shy away when I hear that about a game because often I sit down and play the game and see, okay, there's multiple paths, but this is the one that wins, right? Like you don't forget military if you're playing through the ages. Like there's there's this usually a path that is a little bit better or you need to get into early or maybe you can't diversify if you're going to take that path or these are the things you learn over subsequent plays of a game. In Gengopolis, you have all of these working together in such a unique way, impacted by your player interaction, impacted by the luck and randomness of what you're going to draw for those specific tiles and those cards that are coming through the draft in such a way that I can't begin that game saying, today I'm going to go all in on this, right? Because I don't know what I'm going to get. I'm not sure what actually is going to come my way and what other players are going to do in the timing of what I have to be able to take these actions. So I'm kind of forced to do what I love in a game, which is explore pushing different buttons and pulling different levers Mm. and seeing what those things uh, accomplish, even if I wanted to just sit down and play it the way I always play it and use my MO in this game. I can't do that with Ginkopolis. I have to be flexible and on my toes. Yeah, I think of this as as, as a very dynamic game, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, you cannot enter the game and say, I'm going to do X and follow my plan and execute that plan as best as I can. No, because every hand gives you different opportunities. You've always, you can have a rough idea where you maybe want to go, but you have to react to each hand that comes up, each tile that you draw and figure out, okay, how do I make the best? And it's always changing. Um, And I like games like that, where you have Mm -hmm. to react to circumstances. I am always going to describe Gengopolis as what I consider perfect development. And this is why it's my number one game. And that's why nothing else so far has come close to um, bumping it as my number one game of all time is I find the development of this game exceptional. The fact that the build action is what is going to have you do the tableau clearly because you just went over a tile and that card can no longer be in the game. But instead of like most board games where development would say, okay, that card is now out of the game. How many times do we teach a game and say, okay, when this happens, that card is now out of the game, right? In Gink, they said, no, we're going to use the card. If the card's out of the game, it's used in your tableau. And it's going to give you future resources or it's going to give you end game scoring points. Now you have even more strategic decision to make of when you build and what you build rather than it just being the area majority that it could have been, right? It could have been simple. It could have just been, I'm going to build this. I'm going to get to higher levels. That's going to give me the area majority over this um, area by the end of the game and left it there. But they didn't. They continued with it and they used that piece rather than just the standard discard it from the game. And I think that is genius. I think it's extremely unique and new and something that I haven't really seen replicated um, to this level with this many other things going on, uh, as you see in Gengopolis. And that continues with urbanization. You're sliding that letter circle piece out so that it impacts where the next tile can be built for urbanization taken with that tile. 
So not only have I played the C urbanization card, but I decide where I slide C. I decide what C is now next to, which means the next person, when we refresh that deck and are drafting cards, is going to be impacted by that simple decision of where I slid a circle disc. And they're now going to get whatever is the resources on that orthogonally adjacent tile when they build. Maybe I'm doing it for myself. Maybe I really want to build there next time and I'm hoping it's going to come to me. And so I'm going to slide it this way because I want to get some um, scoring victory points or maybe I need tiles and I'm going to hope that it comes up. Whatever it is, I'm taking a risk. I'm trying to guess like, well, I don't want you to get this. I'll do this. And so now that has become even more strategic than it could have been. It could have been, hey, just place it orthogonally. That's it. Just just place it and go. But it's added onto and it has this more strategic layer. And then we have exploit. So how can we make that even more developmentally rich in this game? It could be your wasted turn. And how many games I that it's just a action you take to gain resources. It feels like spinning your wheels. You're not actually doing anything. But in Gengopolis, I can go and preventatively or proactively build my engine from those build actions so that when I'm taking an exploit, I get a ton of resources, not just the choice of resources that I have by spending that card as um, an exploit action. Now my tableau says that I get all these other things as well. And now my exploit doesn't feel so bad. Exploit could actually be a game plan for winning Ginkopolis and getting a tons of points every time that you do that. That to me is why this game is developed so perfectly and that at every step of that phase, it feels like somebody was in there saying, how do we take this to the next level and the next level and the next level and did so without going so far as to make it just too much. It's actually just enough that it interacts with each other and becomes one of those lifestyle games, those games that you can play over and over and over again. It's going to be different each time, and you're never actually going to perfect it. Like chess, like Go, you're constantly going to be on your heels of there was a better way to play that, and I can't wait to play it next time and try that out. But when I play it next time and try that out, I'm not going to get the cards I need, so I'm going to have to do something else. And you're constantly chasing that next great play of Ginkopolis for me. Well, so let's look at what we don't like about the game or what people may not like about the game, but the warnings. What do you hate about it, Martin? Well, for me, the biggest downstrike on this game is that it is a very abstract game. Um, I, I, as, far as, I, as far as I'm concerned, the theme of this game is less substantial than the cellophane wrap outside the card or box when I bought it. I mean, it just goes away completely. And I, I, it's not necessary for me. I'm quite happy with games that don't have a strong theme. Um, but it is definitely a weakness. I, uh, it's definitely a plus to me if there's a bit of theme in the game. There's absolutely none Fair. here for me. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that's fair. I'm definitely pushing it, and I admittedly so. I like that it's ginkgo trees. I like having learned that it's only the female ginkgo trees that actually admit a smell and are not something that you want to plant, but you can absolutely have urban planting with beautiful ginkgopolis trees if they're male, and I've seen them, and they're, they're lovely and pretty and some of my favorite trees. I love that. I also like that you're delving into this futuristic theme of we've inevitably destroyed the earth um, and we need to rebuild it and be conscious of our decisions. So I enjoy that theme, um, but I'm definitely pushing it into the game versus the game providing it to me. So I can agree with you there for sure. Yeah. Also on my list, perhaps is... Uh higher player counts people find it rather chaotic um i'm not sure how to work that because i mean that's true of almost any game tends yes. to be chaotic high player counts yes but i think one of the things is i think the games that succeed best at higher player counts have some notion of adjacency to them where i'm i'm not affected by everybody else but i'm right. affected by the people i'm next to mm -hmm. um the most obvious case is seven wonders where you, you, you're only really yes. noticing the two player boards next to you. But also Age of Steam has this because you, you're only really concerned about who's in the same part of the map that you are. And you're usually only next to one or two people. I'm usually only bothered about Edward because we always are building in the same spot. Right. Um, this game doesn't have any notion of adjacency like that. So as a result, you have to be worried about what everybody's doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I can see that that increases the chaos even more so at higher player counts than you, you normally get. Yes, that's absolutely true. Because as you noted, we're putting out cards and then we're putting out the resources that go with them, whether it's tiles or, you know, our, our little construction tokens. And so we can kind of get an idea. We're, we're revealing those at the same time, but often in gameplay where that kind of is out there and, and I can kind of guess that, all right, you're going first, you're going to do this. If you end up impacting me here, then I need to be aware that I'm not going to get the resource I want. That, I think, is the chaos that people are referring to in or one of the modes of chaos that people are referring to in BGG when they're mentioning that at higher player counts, because that can just break your brain. If you're you're playing it at five, and especially with newer players, they're trying to look for any input they can as to what action they should take. And that can be really frustrating to look around and see four other people with all these things. <laughs> and should I be calculating this? And what does that mean? And uh, that's just going to lead to confusion. Whereas in general, I love a good chaotic game i'm chaos just for a reason i don't really have a problem with going in and messing up people's plans or having people mess up mine and me you know saying glory to rome or some other word um in response to that i still enjoy that and that's not an issue for me but in this one the chaos doesn't feel justified it doesn't feel like it adds to the gaming experience to me um at a five player player count and i i don't i'm an empath i don't like seeing other people struggle or have a hard time as they're playing especially if i'm the one running the game and i felt that a lot at four and five mm. uh player counts is that i'm almost like should we stop are you having fun anymore it seems like it's a lot so it definitely does increase the chaos in not a good way um, as you get to those higher player counts. And that's why 
I'm, I'm telling you, three-player is the sweet spot for this one, for mm. sure. And I'd also add um, a lot of people are going to be concerned about the randomness. I yeah. mean, there is quite a lot of randomness because of the tile draws and the card draws. And in a way, it's more striking because of the fact that the game is so abstract. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have this sense of abstract games uh, tend to be less random. Mm -hmm. um, but this... This is definitely a fair bit of randomness there. It's not enough to bother me. I still feel that good players will usually beat um, less good players at this. Um, but there is always the chance that somebody gets draws a crucial card that allows them to flip a crucial tile. And even though they've played badly, will sneak ahead. And Yeah, it'll happen, but it doesn't happen often enough to be worrisome. Um, so I'm comfortable with the level of randomness, but other people who are more sensitive to high randomness games will probably not. Well, that and the fact that we've talked about how much that randomness can influence even your own gameplay strategy and how you have to be flexible and change that up in light of the randomness. So and we also talked about how you can mitigate that randomness. There are actions you can take and things that you can build up to try to make that uh, better or manage that better. But that doesn't remove the fact that there is a high level of randomness in this that can feel frustrating if you were trying to plan up some big move or thing you wanted to do and you just don't, for multiple drafts, get any of the you know cards that you can build on, eh, that's going to be really frustrating. So there's ways to mitigate that by changing tile colors or you know going down in number and spending points but those don't feel good that mitigation feels even worse and so that does lead to a feeling of not enjoying what you're doing in the game because of the consequences of that randomness and i can absolutely see that being so something that people would point to uh, i agree with you not something that's going to bother me. I like just the fact that there is still a competition of decision making and that I now have to manage that around the randomness that's going to hit me. But you have to be flexible and willing to accept that to some degree um, or it's going to get to you. That's for sure. the fact that there is finally a reprint for Ginkopolis that came out 2021 from Pearl Games and that had been asked for for a long long time we were hearing you know folks would say to me oh you got this great game that you love and it's out of print is it worth me spending all this money to get one of these last copies I see on BGG. Uh, so there was definitely people requesting it. So I'm happy to see that people can get it. And I know that you picked that up, uh, Martin. So I think we can anticipate a lot more people playing Ginkopolis. Um, and hopefully some of y'all listening have picked up a copy or may consider doing so or at least getting it to a game table. So let's talk about if there are any real differences from that original printing in 2012 and what you can expect from the reprint in 2021. 
Um, how does your box look over there, Martin, that you have of the, the reprint? What do you think of the cover? Um, it's fine. I don't know that there's any difference from the original. Um, a little bit. A little bit, maybe. Um, do you get the crane meeples instead of the gray cylinders, the construction markers? It's very minor yes. differences. It, it certainly wouldn't make any difference to my choice as to which edition to get. Yeah. So, yeah, so pretty similar. You obviously don't need to, you know, truly worry about those crane meeples or you could pick them up secondhand. And there is still, from what I've seen, a big price difference between the original. So whether that comes down and becomes less than the reprint at some point, but I wouldn't pay more for the original. I don't think, no. I think you can just go with either copy, to be fair. Whatever one you can get the best deal on is probably the one to add to your your gaming collection, unless you have some high propensity for getting nostalgic original printings of games. Um, they're pretty similar. And then there's also the expansion, the experts expansion. Uh, so that has six interchangeable modules. And I don't think you've played with this, Martin. Have you no. played with this or seen it? So it has new buildings. Uh, so the buildings in the original go up to the numbers we were talking about, one to 20. And in the expansion, you're going to get buildings 21 through 23. There's going to be three colors of those. So that's adding nine new tiles into the game. Then there's prestige buildings, which are numbered 24 and 25. Those have are even more prestigious, have more end game scoring, just really big bonus buildings that you can build and add in. So there would be six of those, two in each of the color of tiles that you have. You also add in green spaces, which is probably my least favorite module from the experts because... With green spaces, you're adding in these tiles that you can choose one on your turn instead of um, pulling in a tile that's available. And then you're going to score for those based on adjacency of buildings. To me, that's starting to border on you're adding so much into it and so many layers that it's too much. Um, and you're, that to me just feels like too many layers on top of each other. Uh, for me, maybe bring it back down to a six layer cake instead of a seven layer cake. So the green spaces are something that you can use. You also have event cards that you can add in um, and then expert cards, which are going to go into your tableau at the beginning of the game. Um, those That's five of the six modules and you can use those interchangeably. So you can use one of them, you can use none of them, you can use three of them, you could pile them all on. But the last one that I want to talk about is called Keep a Card. And this is a designer endorsed variant to the card drafting. Some folks, without even getting the experts, use this and swear by it for playing Ginkopolis in general. And this small rules change is just that when you are drafting the cards and passing them, before you pass, you get to choose one of the cards to keep. So you keep one into your hand for your subsequent turn. Some people feel that that gives them more control in the game. Um, what do you think, Martin, about that addressing some of the randomness concerns? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to try it and see. I don't feel a need to do that, I guess. 
Um, but hey, I'm only nine plays in, so. Maybe someday. Yeah, try maybe out someday that. give it a I, try. I dislike it. Um, and usually when playing the game, leave it up to the group, you know, and majority wins as far as we vote for whether you're going to keep a card. But in my plays of it, I have not enjoyed it. I think, again, for me, it adds just one too many layers to the cake. And I actually like the crux of knowing that the cards I don't pick go to the next player. And adding on this one other thing I have to consider of which card to keep, I have found adds to the length of the gameplay and not in a way that I like. I don't want to continue thinking about my move that long. I found kind of a sweet spot in how I play. So maybe it's just laziness on my part, but I don't want to make that extra consideration. But I know of people who truly love that variant and think it's the optimal way to play Ginkopolis. So keep that in mind uh, if you're sitting down to play some Gink. to ratings then boil everything we've said in the last hour and down into one single number Uh, yes let's compress it (laughs) the compressed machine on down to your final rating what would you rate gingopolis well for me it's 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 in that area between a four and a five um it's um and uh, with the last uh, game we, uh, I was involved in reviewing, I was reviewing Yin Yang, and I commented how, again, it was, I'm not sure yet how often I'm going to want to pull this off the shelf. Right. Um, and Edward, of course, says, that, well, if you're not sure whether it's a four or five, it should be a four. Yeah. But in this case, I'm inclined to actually tip it to a five because I feel this has got great potential. Okay. I feel I'm going to want to pull it out. I'm, I'm going to want to see how it... And also, I, I, they're, they're, the fact that uh, Cindy really likes it has been a real plus as well. So I'm inclined to, to notch it up one, but it is definitely in the... It'll be interesting to see over the next two or three years how often it gets pulled off that shelf. And of course, part of the challenge is going to be what's it going to be like as I try teaching the game. Absolutely. Uh, So I think there might be some surprise where I rate it. And of course, this is a rating scale of one to six, as uh, you know, if you've listened to the show before. For me, it actually is a five as well. No, can't be a five for you. It's your favorite game. It is my favorite game of all time. I am absolutely completely beyond impressed with the development of it and adore the theme and have fond memories of many, many gameplays of it, but I can't play it with everybody. I know that there are people who will not enjoy playing Gengopolis with me, and I wouldn't recommend it to them because it is just going to be too much strategy upon strategy of decision, and that's unfortunate to me. So for me, it is definitely solidly a five in the rating scale because I know that there are times that I'm going to want to pull it off the shelf. I'm going to want to show somebody how my love of this board game, and I can't. And Mm. that, for me, 
brings it down to a five because I want everyone to enjoy my favorite game. And I know that that's unrealistic for Gengopolis. Uh, so, and that a lot of that comes down to how difficult it is to teach. But again, that all comes back to that strategy upon strategy upon strategy that is a double-edged sword. While I love, love, love that for playing myself, that is going to be less intuitive to other gamers who I also love, love, love playing games with. So hmm. that that has to bring down my score just a little bit, just to a five. Um, and I don't, and this isn't even to say that there are improvements that could be made to the game. I think it's a perfectly developed game, but that doesn't mean it's perfect in every circumstance. So solid five. Shocking. Okay, all. so nothing gets a six from you then, I guess. Uh, we'll see. Yet to be seen. We, <laughs> we will see what what happens. Uh, as well, I gave my out. favorite game a six, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't hesitate on that. So yes, it is possible. It's possible. See, and someday <laughs> someone's going to design a game and and get that seal of approval from Jess. Got to keep. Got to keep that out there, right? So that uh, people can can keep striving for it someday, maybe. So there's one more thing I do want to talk about. You mentioned a contrast to yin yang. And I want to talk about for folks, because we have really dived into how unique Ginkopolis is and how those mechanisms change because of the way they interplay with each other um, as they exist in Ginkopolis. So what other games do you think are like or most dislike Ginkopolis? I'm curious. Yeah, Yin Yang sort of struck me because it's another game I acquired recently. It's the last game we reviewed. It also has an area majority aspect to it, and yet Cindy still likes it, which is kind of a and, and played with two. Um, it, it's an interesting contrast because um, with Yin Yang, there's much less randomness and there's much less intensity of mechanisms tied together. But where the big difference is, is that although it is really fundamentally an equally abstract game, it has this very distinctive setting of being set in China and you've got the, the, the coins that you mm -hmm. shake in the shell. And yeah. It really exudes its setting, although it's not really any theme. You don't feel you really are a monk wandering around China. You, it, the setting comes out very much more strongly than Fair. Ginkopolis does. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought that was a, an interesting contrast of where... The setting really made a difference there, while the setting just does is completely flat on Ginkopolis for me. While I think Ginkopolis does have the richer mechanisms in the gameplay, I think there's a lot more to intensely think about here. Mm -hmm. That's fair. That That's a good contrast to this. Um, so I think about this a lot because people do ask me, they're like, well, what's Gink like? And I think that question will dissipate a bit with the reprint now and people being able to get their hands on it. But hearing that Ginkopolis is my favorite game, I often hear, what is it like? So I've thought about this a lot and it is so unique. I, I don't have a direct correlative to Ginkopolis. But what I think of is Carcassonne as far as the tile laying, the fact that how you're going to lay those tiles matters and that there's so many different expansions that maybe up the gameplay and strategy of it. So something more like a Star Wars version or the Star Wars version of Carcassonne 
is what comes to mind for me. And similarly to what you pointed out here, Martin, that theme I feel is very pasted on, right? I don't feel like a Mm. farmer when I'm placing a meeple in a farm. I don't feel like I'm in a castle when I complete my castle. (laughs) Like none of that is actually coming through. I'm putting these tiles out and I'm doing these things, but the theme isn't pervasive. And yet you have all these, you know, you have the castle, you have the catapult, you have all different versions of Carcassonne that take it in a little bit of a different direction and maybe add some more strategy. I think the one that would add the most, more additional layers of strategy would be the Star Wars version of Carcassonne. So I think to me, that's the one that's the closest to it. And interestingly, I've had similar issues explaining or teaching the Star Wars version of Carcassonne to folks um, because there's battling going on and there's all this other stuff that people aren't used to with straight up Carcassonne where you could actually get knocked off a tile or be on a planet and you don't get the planet anymore because you have some randomness in it where you roll dice to fight with your lightsabers and see if you're actually going to stay on that tile. So I'd compare it to that. And I know that's also a very um, hard to find game because uh, Carcassonne, they don't have the rights to Star Wars here in North America. So for those listening in North America, that one can be a hard one to find. But if you ever see it on BGG or Marketplace or have the chance to get it, I do highly recommend it. that's a, another good one. And I think it's a correlative to this that's a little easier to get onto the game table. So that's it. That is our thoughts yep. on Ginkopolis. I'm committed to this now. I feel a little bit of relief having raided Ginkopolis on this and dived into you know all the mechanisms of it and really talked about my feelings on it um so yeah that was good well, the next thing easy. is a stream yes now we do need to stream it folks will be coming back into stream relatively shortly because we, as we said at the beginning both you and i a week from today finally vaccinated and can start Yay. to get together in person so Hopefully we'll have an upcoming stream of it and I'll flip a coin and pick which way I'm going to teach Kinkopolis. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for being here, Martin. I really, really appreciate it. This was no problem. great time as usual. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in person and not always on these Zoom calls. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going into that studio room again and acquainting myself with your new table. Yes. Oh, goodness. You haven't seen the new table? you kidding me? It's been that long? It's been that long. That's sad. That's sad in a way. Okay. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's, it's very, um, it's very big. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a very big table. So looking forward to that. My best to Cindy as always. Hopefully we'll get to go on a hike soon as it hits spring here in New England. All right. Thank you all for listening. And uh, that's it. I'm Jess. And I'm Martin. Bye guys. (laughs) 